Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, September 7th starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes New York-based cinematographer Michael Cromit. The Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink. If you want to know, you got to go to ChicagoReader.com. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, just head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. It's that simple. I'll spell that for you. J-O-R-A-V is in victory. S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Madigan out Thursday. And here's why. Because the headlines in the newspapers say it all. Michael Joseph Madigan, one of the most powerful politicians in the history of the state of Illinois, is finally out of absolutely everything. He had been the chairman of the Democratic Party in the state of Illinois. He quit. A step down from that. He had been a uh, state representative, of course, from a district on the southwest side, for, uh, which enabled him to be Speaker of the House. First, he stepped down as Speaker, then he stepped down as from his position as state rep. And now he has stepped down. He announced he won't run for re-election as 13th Ward Committee person. He's going to turn things over to Marty Quinn, his longtime aide and the alderman. And man, it's like a passing, just a passing. I could go on and on and on about Michael Joseph Madigan and the power that he had and how he did it, how he was able to keep to him absolutely everything was about control and having power and maintaining power and the way he maintained power was to make sure that his caucus members the democratic lawmakers in springfield got reelected and then they remained loyal to him and then once they were in springfield absolutely every aspect of life was pretty much controlled by michael madigan you want a pass to go to the bathroom you got to go to michael madigan i exaggerate but that's essentially uh, how he ran things he doled out the aids that people had and he doled out like he Copy paper. Someone told me a story about how he doled out the copy paper that you needed for your copy machines uh, came from his office. Uh, very powerful control he had. Uh, and he used that power in many instances to stifle initiatives that uh, lefties or progressives like I wanted because he thought that was detrimental to his power that might be used against him. So he was not really a great progressive by any means. But at some point, uh, in his term, in his tenure, he uh, stood up for the unions in this state in the battle against Rauner. So I always have some appreciation for him for that. Uh, they led the fight against Rauner, but he is by no means a progressive. Talk on and on about Michael Joseph Madigan. We're going to move on and have a conversation about another powerful force in American politics, and that is Donald Trump. Uh, with me is Michael Cromit, who is a filmmaker, a uh, documentarian. 
and a great cameraman. Very fortunate that he's my guest today. It was like a fortuitous series of events that led to his participation uh, in this show. So first of all, Michael, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. Yeah, so now I'm now going to explain the fortuitous series of events that, uh, no, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to allow you, Michael, to promote this incredible documentary that you worked on. Let's get that out of the way first so that folks tune us off. At least they get that message, although there's no reason to tune us off, ladies and gentlemen, when you hear the story Michael has to tell. So get that piece of business out of the way first, and then I'll explain things. Let's get the plugs in. Let's get the plugs in. So uh, I I am the co-producer and uh, cinematographer on a three-part series called Unprecedented, which is originally produced for Discovery. Uh, It's now available on Discovery Plus and on the Max platform. And essentially, it is a look into the Trump family from about mid-September 2020 to the middle of 2021. It follows them on the campaign trail it follows him into the White House. We did an interview with Trump just after the election in the diplomatic reception room in the White House. And it follows his events all the way up until January 6th, where uh, I was basically on the front lines of the insurrection that day. And uh, and beyond that, we interviewed Trump at Mar-a-Lago and at Bedminster after January 6th. And, uh, you know, we can talk about his reaction to that because it even changed over time uh, between those two interviews. So, um, I worked with a great filmmaker, Alex Holder, uh, British, but now becoming more American by the day, lives in Los Angeles, has a 10-year visa, and, uh, you know, is, um, is, is, is kind of falling in love, in love with America through this project, which is so funny because I think it shows some of the most dangerous and insidious parts of America, right? Uh, but I think he finds us endlessly fascinating uh, and entertaining as Americans. And it was great to collaborate with him. He had a very simple premise at the start, which was, hey, if I'm going to have access to Donald Trump and his family, why not? Right. Why not take advantage of that? Why not look into it uh, and try to illuminate, uh, you know, arguably what was for many time, for many years and, and that period, the most famous family in America. And yet, we don't really know how they work, how they function, how they interact beyond what they present to us uh, and what we is leaked out through reports. So it was a good goal. And I think it, it obviously bore more fruit than I think we could, could have imagined. Absolutely. Um, and we're going to take the deep dive and all that. And maybe I'll use this as an opportunity after the show to reach out to Alex Holder, bring him on as well, because this is a, a subject of not just national importance, but great personal interest to me, Michael, uh, we have talked so much about the Trumps, Donald Trump, his reign, his rules, control over MAGA, the January 6th insurrection, the congressional hearings, the, the court cases against Trump. So it's it's a really, um, it's, a, it's a, a fantastic moment for me and my listeners to have you here. Uh, so thank you very much for coming. Here's how it worked, folks. You won't believe this. So uh, I was interviewing a couple of comedians Last week, I think it was, lost track of time, who did a very funny documentary, a 10-minute mockumentary, I should say, uh, called Hoop Dreams 2. So more plugging going on here. Uh, and uh, Aton and Liam, shout out. I urge everybody to check out that interview. It's a different interview. It's very funny. And so I was like, I said to them in passing, on the mic, unscripted. This, this was not prepared. I go, you know, the footage was really good. 
I mean, it's kind of a backhand compliment, Michael, because these are guys, a couple of comedians. It's 10 minute mockumentary that they put together themselves. I think it's hilarious. Uh, it's got nothing to do with Trump, nothing to do with the insurrection, nothing to do with politics. It's a fake documentary about a guy who has dreams, aspirations to be in the NBA. He's a terrible basketball player. And I was like, you know, for a couple of comedians in L.A., or ones in New York, but a couple comedians, you guys, that looked good. It's like, what you, who shot it? They're like, you get your cousin to shoot it or something? And they go, no, uh, we got Michael Cromit to shoot it. He's the guy who filmed uh, the documentary about the insurrection and Trump. And I'm like, this is on the mic. I'm like, what? Wait a minute. That, because I knew about your documentary because the footage you shot was crucial evidence at one point or another in the House investigation. I'm going, wait a minute. You're telling me that the dude who shot the January 6th insurrection was the same filmmaker who shot your doc <laughs> Maki drama. Yeah. So by the way, great work. It shows you, you got a lot of range, my man. Cause that documentary, in my opinion is hilarious, but this Trump documentary is very frightening. I just finished watching episode three. Ladies and gentlemen, if you only watch one, in my humble opinion, that's the one to watch. A lot of headshots of Trump's in the other one, but this stuff is for real. Excellent work, in my humble opinion. So let's start at the top. Michael, explain how it was that Alex got a hold of the Trumps, connected with the Trumps to start this thing going, and how you got connected through Alex. Go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I guess I'll tell Alex's story briefly. And obviously, yeah, Alex on, he can he can tell you a deeper story. But Alex has been uh, working on a series about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, finds himself in Israel. And someone says, oh, you should Trump to talk to Trump's guy in Israel, this guy, Jason Greenblatt. And so he goes, OK, you know, um, I'll chat with him. And he doesn't really find anything much to talk about in regards to his series. But at the end of the meeting, uh, Jason turns to him and says, oh, hey, how would you like to uh, you know, make a documentary about the Trump family and not being uh, an idiot. Uh, Alex said yes. And uh, he jumped on it uh, through a various series of conversations um, with the family. We sort of slowly shot bit by bit with the various siblings. So with Eric and then with Jared and then with Ivanka uh, and then finally with Don Jr. and Tiffany and working our way toward uh, the president. And um it was uh, sort of, you know, this gradual process. I think Alex uh, did a great job just being genuinely curious. I think his 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 position as being an outsider, being a you know, British, not you know, being able to sort of be curious about the American system without appearing to have a side in the American system really aided him in uncovering more things. And so, yeah, we just we continually gained more and more trust and access as time went on. And uh, no one thought to ask, uh, you know, who had control of the project or what our motivations were. It was just, you know, okay, yeah, sure, we'll do another interview, we'll do another interview. And, uh, you know, basically, we found ourselves at rally after rally. But, you know, after the election, there was such a marked change in the tone in the crowds. You could almost say that in the crowds, there was, it, there was of course, anger, but it was a, a bit of like a religious ceremony, a bit of an ecstasy. And when Trump lost the election and began to fight the results, it became much more angry, much more violent, much more of a um, of a of of a of a vitriol that was going on. And so, 
um, that shift we were able to document partly because right after the elections, the Trumps cut us out. They cut our access. And so we were left to record their followers who were out in the streets uh, at election counting centers across the country protesting. And so we saw this basically what I see as the end result of their demagoguery, the end result of everything they were drumming up during the election, bubbling up, coming up to the surface and really spilling over. And um, and so as we followed that, we sort of started to come back into the Trump's orbit. We did an interview with Trump. We're filming his rallies in Georgia uh, in ostensibly in support of the senatorial candidates, but actually just became big grievance spewings by Trump. And um, and then we ended up in Washington, D.C. on January 6th at his rally, as we covered so many rallies. Our access was much more limited than at the other rallies, but we were there. And I, to be honest, I thought, oh, you know, I've been to a lot of these. And they are all bark, no bite. They go up to whatever capital they're protesting in front of. They, uh, you know, they complain for a little while. They yell, they push barricades. But I did not think they would go so far as they did to, to breach the capital in the way they did. And when I finally left the rally and went to the mall, the thing that indicated to me is I looked down the mall and I see little ants starting to climb up the scaffolding. And I immediately just put the camera at my side and ran full sprint down the mall because I thought I have to be there. And and every decision I made that day was based on everything we'd shot prior because I was seeing one to one results of their political rhetoric take root, take manifest themselves in January 6th. You could just see it one to one. And, and I also made sure at the time to get a lot of shots that show Trump flags, MAGA hats. Trump's at January 6th, even though he's not physically present, Trump is there. He's there through everyone's support. And it makes me laugh whenever they say, oh, it's Antifa, it's this. It's like, no, I've been been to enough Trump events. I'm seeing the same people. You know, these are the same people. Uh, and so I, I think um, every, every bit of footage, every time I got closer was in some sort of danger or whatnot, I kept telling myself, but think about what kind of you know, the case we're mounting, essentially, the evidence we have prior to this, and then the results we're seeing. And and so that that's sort of, you know, the the, the broad overview of the project and, and my experience. But, you know, that that, you know, Alex really pulled off a, a coup there, you know. All right. So I'm going to hold off on Alex's questions because I fully anticipate to bring Alex on that. That's a whole other arena uh, that'll get into a lot of the footage shot uh, of the first two parts, a lot of the 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 Trump interviews in the White House, et cetera, and so forth. Let's go back uh, to January 6th, that split-second decision that you had to make. Uh, and think about that, ladies and gentlemen. This dude, Michael, is filming uh, what looks like a typical Trump rally, and it turns into an insurrection. And to, to follow up on, on your narrative, the telltale sign is when you see those ants crawling up the wall, the Capitol, well, those are people crawling up the wall. Those are MAGA people. Those are Trump followers, and Trump had just finished giving a speech saying, "And I'm, let's go on to the Capitol," uh, and they they went on to the Capitol. So when you say you ran to it, is it just you alone, or do you have like a sound man with you, or uh, anybody else that's with you? Any other uh, filmmakers with you? So uh, Alex went back to the car, not out of any sort of cowardice. It was actually just a practical reason. We had a tripod, a longer lens, so he was running equipment to our car. 
um, a sound recordist was with me, but when I made that book toward the Capitol, I lost him and I did not see him until the hotel that night. Um, and he felt terrible. Uh, he, he's, I've never, he's been, he's like, I've been doing this for 30 years. I've never lost a cameraman in my life, you know? And, and he was, you know, and he was a fit guy. He could have kept up, but you know, it just, it was one of those things that I just, I knew that I, I had to have it. And, you know, luckily I carry extra batteries and whatnot in my, you know, my, on my body. So I had enough equipment to get me through the day. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was lucky it, it worked out. So you were, uh, recording the sound through your camera. Right. Yeah. So the only sound is the microphone that's on my on my camera. Yeah. All right. So uh, do you have any identification on you that says uh, media, uh, anything to identify you as someone not part of the insurrection? Uh, so I, I had my typical press pass for Trump rallies. It's, it's actually funny to to uh, tell a little anecdote. Uh, at one rally to kind of explain our weird status as a documentary that sort of had the approval of the Trumps, I was wearing a badge one day that said Trump staff, and in the blank spot, it said press, which I thought was so funny. It wasn't a, a press badge. It was a Trump staff badge that had press written on it. So we were always editorially independent, but we were always in this slightly more privileged position because I guess what they thought we were portraying them as. But yeah, um, but when I got close to the Capitol, I immediately threw it into my coat. So I threw it and hid it under my coat because I was like, I don't want anyone sort of associating you know, immediately press with me. And actually one of my tricks, so, you know, I, I've had friends who go undercover, you know, at MAGA rallies when I'm wearing MAGA gear. I, I chose to never do that. I never wanted to to go that far. But um, I did have on my phone a uh, an album of stills and videos from the footage we'd shot to date. And I had that ready to go. So I could just unlock my phone, show it to someone and say, oh, you know, um, I'm with the Trumps, uh, you know, like I, I've been following the Trumps on the campaign trail for the last, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, eight, nine months. Uh, you know, we've been to rallies, we've been to this and I kind of do my spiel. Um, I you know, actually you know, I misspoke before. I never actually ever said that I was with the Trumps. I just said, oh, they've allowed us to film. But what was great is the second I said that to people, they then assumed I was with them. And, and ironically, people tried to help get me to the front. Um, because they were like, oh, this guy's with the Trumps, this guy's with the Trumps. And I didn't say anything. Of course, I was just like, okay, cool. I'll get a friend. Plenty of people though, took one look at me and said, this guy does not look like a Trump supporter. You're media. We don't need you. Fuck you. Get out of here. You know, just like vitriol, vitriol, vitriol. And you know, it, um, it's, it, 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 it's a tense relationship. And, and you can see in the footage that, you know, it manifested in violence you know, a few times against me. So, you know, it's, it's real. Yeah. It's very real and it's very tense. Now, the other thing, um, of course, uh, you have the badge, show it, uh, you, you, you put the badge in, uh, your shirt. So you didn't want the, the MAGA people beating you up or what have you. What about the, the police presence, the Capitol police? Did you ever have to deal with them as they said, you have to leave, uh, this area. Did you have to deal with the, the police? Um, you know, it's funny, I filmed a lot of Black Lives Matter protests over the summer of 2020. And I had far more interaction and negative interaction with the police in those than I did ever on January 6. Um, and um, certainly they were throwing, you know, pep pepper spray tear gas 
um, you know, and, and so it's not like it was a picnic in terms of the police presence, but uh, certainly there was just a marked difference between um, the police handling of the situation on January 6th and any of those Black Lives, Matter, Black Lives Matter protests that I went to. So, you know, there were many times that I was kettled and cornered and pushed and batoned in New York when none of that happened on January 6th. And, and almost at the end, there's a funny moment when uh, it was over, the police had taken control and they were funneling everyone out. And when we were getting to the end, I'm furiously texting Alex, the director, saying, hey, you got to come meet me. I got to hand you the footage. I'm 90% sure I'm getting arrested at the end of this line. And I want to lose the footage. Come grab it. Come grab it. And he's not in cell services and working, whatever. And I get to the end and no one's arrested. No one's being arrested. And I just suddenly it came over me. I go, oh, okay, I, I see what's going on here, you know. But, you know, so it's, it's it, ostensibly, you know, I think the, the Trump supporters feel that they have the police on their side. Um, and you know, to the extent that's true is obviously variable and, and there's been evidence in both directions, but, you know, I, I thought it was ironic that at one point they were throwing, uh, tear gas and pepper spray and Trump supporters started chad chanting, I can't breathe. And I thought the irony of that and the sort of, I just think the ignorance of, of saying that was just so shocking to me, the co-opting of that phrase in that context. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I, I obviously I was watching this on TV, Michael, I was nowhere near the front lines like you were, but I, I saw exactly what you just described when the, I think it was the National Guard as well, took control of the Capitol. People were streaming out of the uh, Capitol. They were just walking off in the distance. And I've seen footage, the, the things that they were saying to the cops. I mean, I've talked to so many Chicagoans about this, Michael. I'm like, oh, my God, these guys are trashing these cops right to their face. There's stuff they're saying to them. You say that to a Chicago cop, like, <laughs> you're going to get hit in the head. Worse, you know, and, ah, oh, man, you know, they got calling them pussies and all kinds of stuff. And, I'm calling uh, them traitors, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, and that that's really ironic because – they're the ones disrupting the U.S. government, you know. Uh, so, you know, arguably they're the traitors. I know that actually not arguably they are the traitors, um, but they, yeah, they see them as traitors to their cause, I guess. All right. So you arrive. Uh, you're at the the steps of uh, uh, the Capitol. You're in the midst uh, of it all. Describe what happens next uh, in your in, in that day for you. Take it away. Yeah, so I'm walking down the mall. I'm seeing people come in. I, you know, it, it's funny as a filmmaker too, because you're you're trying to work out a sequence in your mind, right? You know, you can't just jump to the Capitol. So I'm trying along the way to get people marching, walking, getting different. And it really is this. You know, it's odd that Trump supporters and Trump rallies they're sort of you know bizarre circuses of a kind. The you know, people dress up in costumes. They you know so there's there's a guy in a Revolutionary War outfit with a, you know, with a drum, you know, with a snare drum, you know, they're marching through and they're, then you start to see the gallows that they had erected in front of the Capitol. It's actually, there's a shot that I saw that a lot of other people have gotten where the noose is visible and the Capitol is in the background. And actually, I never got that shot because when I went to go get that shot, there were a group of people who looked like they were right ready to beat the hell out of me if I went to get that shot. And I was like, all right, let me, let me move on. I also had this idea of like, I need to figure out a way to get to the front of this 
and see what's going on at the front of this. And so, you know, a lot of people who were filming and photographing on January 6th, we, we kind of all know each other and we, we talk about it. And we always often say it's kind of a choose your own adventure situation, which did you go left or right at this juncture? You know, did you, you know, where did you decide to go? So long story short is I kind of chose the West steps of the Capitol as my area to be. And that, you know, ironically would be the place that Joe Biden would be inaugurated uh, less than two weeks later. Um, and so you are along the way seeing, uh, you know, you're seeing people who've defecated in the uh, corners of the scaffolding. Um, you're seeing, uh, you know, I, I filmed it's in there. Um, I forget his name, but the man who put his legs up on uh, his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk. Uh, and it's so funny because you're so there's no cell service. There's no connection to the outside world. You're so in it, too. I didn't know that guy. I thought that guy was making it up. Actually, he was holding something from the office of the Speaker of the House. And I I, I thought, no, he probably just picked it off off the ground. I don't know if I believe him that he was actually there. And then later I find out, oh, wait, that was the guy I filmed. So you're so devoid of outside information. You're just taking an experience as you go. So, yeah, I'm sticking my way. I'm, you know, I'm trying to get to higher ground to see the, the lay of the land and also to get a shot of it. But then also, how do I get further? And all the while, as I was mentioning, thinking about, okay, what do we have in the series prior to this? What footage do we have that sort of indicates that this is possible? And, and, and how can I draw these connections? Um, and, and as it goes along, it just becomes this idea of I will be here as long as it takes to capture. And, and you know, as I mentioned, I'm using people to get to the front. I'm, I'm, I'm dodging past people. Some people are polite and let me through. And some people are incredibly rude saying, you know, whatever it's a mix of people and you just find your way through somehow. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, you know, I'm a pretty, pretty liberal, you know, left of definitely left of center, if not leftist guy. And, um, but I grew up in Georgia. I spent a lot of my life around conservatives. Um, I, I, yeah, I had somebody when I went to high school, I had somebody who drove a pickup truck every day to school with a giant Confederate flag, you know, lot yeah mounted on the back of it so you know i i sort of have experience sort of um working my way through um uh, uh, these sort of um these groups of people and sort of and 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 trying to you know I, I i always hesitate to say how much i see their side of things but at least i can speak a language that they we can at least have some common ground on you know mm -hmm. and i can get along in some ways. And so I kind of just kept using those skills to just get myself closer and closer and closer. And then it just was a siege at that point. It was a siege. They were grabbing any long, sharp object they could, and they were hurling it or they were, um, you know, pushing in unison, heave ho, trying to siege essentially what was the castle of the Capitol. Um, and so, you know, as I'm there, um, you know, there's plenty of people who, you know, threaten my life if I keep filming that direction or this one, um, you know, there's people who are saying, you know, fuck you, we don't need you here, your press, your media, you're the enemy. And as you see in the series, there's people spouting all sorts of QAnon theories of that there's pedophiles inside and have you filmed the pedophiles yet? And, you know, this kind of talk. 
And then as the chaos just keeps going on, um, I, I get a shot that I still to this day think, uh, you know, if it's why I love documentary. It's like if you art directed and scripted the shot, you'd be like, oh, that's too on the nose. That'll never happen. But I literally had a woman who was crying, who, who wiping her tears with an American flag. And you're like, oh, wow, if I'd written that, someone would be like, hack me trash, you know, like, oh, what are you doing, you know? um and yeah it's real it happened um and and as i'm filming in that area all of a sudden i see a group of people you know sort of moving toward me and i realize they're dragging somebody and it turns out it's this young woman roseanne boyland who speaking about growing up in georgia grew up 20 minutes away from me in georgia i grew up in marietta she grew up in kennesaw so it was uh roseanne boyland and she was blue head to toe they were attempting to perform CPR on her. And you have a, a, a moment of where your level of responsibility starts and stops. And it's good. I've been doing this for over a decade now. So I've worked out these questions ahead of time. You know, I, I think there is a responsibility to tell the story and there is a responsibility to human fellow human beings and their safety and their health. And so I think you have to balance those two very important uh, considerations. And so I filmed as long as I felt conveyed the gravity of the situation, what happened, uh, how it occurred, so that it would show as her brother-in-law so aptly said in an interview that Trump killed the people who loved him the most that day. And I think by documenting that i think i think it shows that trump killed the people who loved him the most that day um what's interesting is that her family is split on this and this is all on reporting i haven't spoken to them myself but my understanding is the family is, is split on this fact some think she died doing a patriotic performing a patriotic duty and others feel that she was essentially killed by trump the coroner believes she died of asphyxiation by way of uh, an antidepressant medication she was taking. But I think that that's a classic case of the coroner's report doesn't actually tell the story. You know, I think my footage, other people's footage, the eyewitness testimony, I think, tells that story. And she was killed on January 6th. She was trampled. She was trampled to death. Um, and it's it's a it's a sad story because she was somebody who had struggled with depression. Um, she'd been getting better, and then the pandemic happened. She went down a QAnon rabbit hole, and it brought her to January six. And uh, I think her story is so emblematic of the what I feel is the empathy we should have for some people. There are people who we should have very little empathy to no empathy for. I think. The ringleaders, the people who manipulate the Trumps themselves, who use it for power, um, people who are exploiting other people through it. But I think the people who see it as solace, as as hope, as comfort, because we as a society have let them down, right? To me, that's a story of we need better mental health care. We need um, you know more readily available counseling, like we set ourselves up for people falling into these traps. You know, from that day is that she was she was killed by the events that took place and all those events are the direct result of Donald Trump. Mm. Powerful stuff. So where were you uh, trying to picture 
Where were you exactly when you saw her body being dragged out? So if you're looking at the West step, so imagine Biden getting inaugurated, right? Yeah. So, you know, he's on the right, the chief justice is on the left, right? And you see the stairs going up. I would be yeah. almost directly behind where the chief justice would be on the wow. steps there. So I'm wow. there's a window to the left there. I'm maybe three steps, four steps down from that window, looking down kind of toward the uh, the balcony where where Biden would have taken the inaugural uh, uh, yeah, oath. So from there, did you go into the Capitol? No. So I, you know, my January 6th, like I said, everybody's January 6th is different. Um, because no one ever breached the West gate to the Capitol. I never went in, which you have to, I guess, you know, hand it to the solidarity of the police who were there in riot gear that they, they held, they held also because they were fortified there and they were, they had uh, riot shields, et cetera, other parts of the Capitol. So like I said, you can take a left or a right. If I had taken a left uh, at a certain juncture, so essentially yeah, I'm going to confuse what I guess it would be I'm trying to think of the way the Capitol is oriented. So the, it, I had basically the option to go north or south on the west side of the Capitol. And I went south and I could have gone north. And if I'd gone north, I would have found that there were broken windows and people were simply just stepping inside through the broken windows. And and when you see Q Shaman and you see those folks sort of from that end enter and parade through, that's how they got in was through there. Um, so uh, it's just, it's just a matter of circumstance really. And so after uh, that moment uh, on the steps, we're, it, we're, we're Trump had been uh, sworn in just four years before we're, Biden would eventually be sworn in. Just, just think about that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, then what happened? What What was the next move for you? Um. So, um. You know. So, I, 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 emotions were high after that in that area. I think also simultaneously that was where Brian Sitnik had been assaulted as well. So, everyone was tense. I think, and so a man not appreciating my presence, maybe not appreciating the fact that I filmed what happened to Roseanne. I don't know, but, um, uh, he decided to attack me. Uh, he tried at first to get my camera. He's get, he said, get the fuck out of here. And he tried to grab my camera and jostle it out of my, uh, arms. Luckily I use a, a system that attaches my camera to my body using a rubber band, essentially a strong rubber band. So, I was able to kind of push back and gain control of the camera again. Uh, and then when he was upset that he couldn't destroy my camera, he then tried to push me down the steps that I was on that I described before. So um, then he shoved me and I kind of you know did that sort of self-correcting, bouncing back and forth, you know, juggling down the stairs and landed on my knee, like right at the bottom of the sto of these like, you know, marble steps. And then I just look up and I'll never forget the image of just being encircled by gosh knows how many 20 Trump supporters all just yelling, get out of here. We don't need you here. And I have to say, you know, um, it, there was an officer, I think it was Brian Sicknick, who said at one point, you know, there were people who helped me. And I thought, I'm so grateful for them helping me but they nobody should have been there in the first place yeah. and i felt the same way so in in that moment two people kind of stepped in was and and were kind of like leave him alone like you know he's just you know videoing this like you know just 
lay off essentially and, and people backed away and I, i'm grateful to those two people i don't know where it would have gone from there but i'm glad they you know they stepped in and at that point i kept i kept filming until they cleared the place out so um that was probably another you know half hour 45 minutes and basically it was just around sundown which yeah. as a filmmaker is called magic hour and uh it's funny that you know kind of the magic happened at that moment to some extent in the, in the sense that the police were able to push everyone back uh and they cleared us out with tear gas just heavy amounts of tear gas i'm you know it's it's in the series so the footage is there and you know what one canister explodes right under my foot i remember when it bounced off my foot i thought whatever happens hold the shot you know i just thought there's no going anywhere right now it's going to go off wherever it goes off and you can see it in the footage the camera kind of like you know bolts up into the air you know um and uh and yeah and then basically what i described before you know failing some cops kind of you know they created a little corridor for everybody to walk through and out and then you know as i said nothing in terms of arrests nothing in terms of consequences in the moment just walking into the night and I went and got a shot from over by the reflecting pool to kind of get an end of like kind of the end of the day, the sort of like calm after the chaos and uh, the battery warning on my camera is, you know, battery low beeping. <laughs> and that was my last battery. So literally I, I, I just got through the day with the equipment I had on me, you know, uh, on my own. So yeah, I was lucky in that way. And so then you, th th that night, did you eventually hook up with uh, Alex to give him uh the footage yes so alex um was doing something very wily in the meantime um so the washington dc had uh had shut down right um a curfew had been put in place and all the streets have been blocked but alex and and i hope you can talk to him because you'll find that he's just the most charming human you'll meet and he just found a way to talk to this police officer that police officer this 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 he gets his way all the way up to constitution avenue and he's in the middle of there it is literally a street with no cars on it except his jeep and he's in the jeep and he you know, gives me his location i meet him he's hop in we gotta go and we speeding through the street cops are looking at us like what? like how are you in here get out of here you know uh, and, uh, yeah, I was able to give him the report. I obviously missed calls from everyone in my life who knew where I was. Um, uh, my mother being top of them. Uh, and, uh, luckily she was the person who called me right when I got in the Jeep. So I made sure to answer that call. <laughs> and my first words were like, I'm, I'm okay. First of all, you know, so, so, you know, and yeah, that was, uh, we'd be off into the night and then regrouped at the hotel and I had not eaten or gone to the bathroom all day. We had to be at the rally at 4 or 5 a.m. for security checks. And it was, you know, 8, 9 when we got to the hotel. And uh, I, the, you know, Alex was like, what do you need? I said, I need a bathroom and a warm meal. That's all I need right now. Um, and yeah, and that uh, and that was, that was my day. I often say the biggest injury I got was that night I went to take a shower and I stubbed my toe on the tub. Um, it's funny, like, you know, my knee didn't get all that hurt from falling and no one else really landed a punch. So it it's funny. That was my, my worst injury was, was the tub at the end of the day. Well, not to make this interview all about me, but let me, I've been, I've been battling gout for a week. That was my uh, loyal oh, yeah. listeners know. So I know a stub toe hurts, ladies. Just, you know, go ask Sha Shaquille O'Neal what it's like to play basketball with a, with a bad toe. I, I've heard him on the subject. It's pretty funny. 
Uh, so I feel your pain already. Um, was there? Did you experience post traumatic stress uh, for this? Like the next day when you woke up, did or did you? Did it just hit you like, oh my lord, what have I survived? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I have a friend who, you know, obviously went through a lot more than me as a, as a vet, as an Iraq war vet. And he and I had a long conversation about it at one point. And he said, you know, they should stop calling it PTSD. They should call it PTS. There's no disorder. You're not reacting in any disordered way. Your, your reaction is rational. Your reaction is normal. Right. And so I, you know, I agree with him. And I think, it, you know, PTS, the stress of having been there and the and the natural reaction um it didn't hit right away um but certainly um i i saw results all over the place you know i've i've lived in new york for 10 years i've i've never been all that fearful walking the street or anything like that and then you know one night i was just walking down the street and somebody's shadow cast on on my body because they wanted to walk a little faster than me and i jumped from their shadow and their person felt so bad. They were like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. It just never would have happened without January 6th. I definitely always felt hypervigilant, you know, uh, what's going on? Who's behind me? Um, you know, kind of this idea that, like, anything bad could happen at any given moment. And so, um, you know, I, I, um, I definitely saw results from it. Um, I think talking about it, I think working through it, having conversations like this, reliving it, but in a way that sort of puts it in context, gives it meaning. Um, I think it's been really helpful. Um, but yeah, I mean, I talk about it with other people who were there that day. And it's funny, a, a good friend of mine who I'm, I'm actually working on a project with now, who was, was there for his own project, um, he said me talking about my feelings that day helped him work through his feelings through all of it. You know, because he had been covering a lot of white supremacists uh and and right-wing rallies and um yeah i think he had been in a bit of denial about his uh the ptsd or pts that he was going through and um and and he said me talking about it helped him think about it a little more so i think we all have it from that day um you know i i would hope that you know we can talk more as a society about people who work in journalism in filmmaking etc who deal with traumatic subject matter and realizing that that obviously is awful for the people involved but it also does have an effect on the people capturing it the people trying to tell that story with them and uh you know i i i talked to you about assistant editors in documentary who are often the people who are watching the footage and not just watching the footage watching all of it and watching it over and over again so whereas i have the experience of resident Boylan's death which is in per was in person but it happened once i recorded it once you know an assistant editor and editor has to watch that again and again and again and again uh and it's a you know it's slow trickle that weighs on the heart you know and um uh, i i think that's something we could work through as a as an industry it's something we can work through as a as journalists as, as storytellers um and it's important to work through because I think if you haven't resolved that, you you can't keep going, you know, and it, it cuts to the core. Like I said, it cuts to the core of why we do it and what's the goal here, right? If the question is, oh, should I should I be helping her? But also, like, how could I help her in this moment, right? Somebody seems to know CPR and is trying it, right? Somebody also is suggesting that they drag her to the cops so that they can get medical attention to her. Um, 
you know, it, so you, you have that sort of bystander effect, but it's amplified by the fact that you have this other job to do, which is important. Um, and, and so there's guilt there. There's, um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of layers of feelings, but, um, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm mostly on the other side of it now. I think I have left that experience much more compassionate, like much more, you know, I try to be genuine in all my interactions and I try to, um, you know, I, I try to see other people's sides because I see when we get so out of whack and so and we just don't see each other where that can go. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping to avoid that. I'm also hoping to come out very strongly against anything from that day. And, and the, the meaning of that day and the purpose of the day, it is, it, it's abhorrent. It's like, it, I think I haven't gone through it. I think there's two feelings. There's one that we talk about it way too much. And there's one that we don't talk about it enough. We don't talk about the right things about January 6. I think as a person who went through it, sometimes I think, okay, some people are hyperbolic in their description. Like, okay, come on. They didn't assault the Capitol all with AR-15s, guns ablazing. Like there wasn't a firefight that day. There wasn't a, you know, like it, that, that would be a whole other level. I think sometimes when people talk about it, they talk about it in those terms which would just be even like more unfathomable more terrible and so it's like okay no but also at the same time we don't nearly talk about the psychology the motivations the um what it was like on the ground um the religious type fervor that sort of overtook people i think all of that and all that detail and the little moments you know somebody trying to get in the middle of the cops and the protesters and 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 say we don't do this we don't fight cops and the and the insurrectionists just you know barrel right past him like you know we're not listening to you we're we're still going yes you know, so it's like mob mentality there's all these little moments these little things that you know um that get lost when it gets edited into a project when it gets a photo gets published in a newspaper or whatever it might be and people recount stories and i think yeah i got a call from a photographer who was there that day who said hey man do you ever like have this experience where you you see everyone look at your footage and you just want to say no you're not you're still not getting it quite right it's still the footage is still like it's a simulacrum it's still not the real thing and that frustration of like yeah no one knows quite just what it was like that day except us you know, is what he said to me. And I, I was like, yeah, that's really, that's really true. No one will ever know quite exactly what it was right, what it was like to be there. Um, just like I have no idea what it was like to see it on TV. And I, and that was the first thing I thought when I was headed back to the hotel was like, so has anybody been watching this? You know, I kept thinking like, is anyone on yeah. CNN talking about it? Like I didn't, I had no idea. I thought maybe, I don't know, you know, whatever. It wasn't getting much coverage. I don't know. You know, it was, it was funny. Uh, so you, you mentioned something, and I'm going to come back to it. Uh, they weren't guns blazing, and I've often thought about this. I'll put it to you. Um, why weren't why were, weren't there guns blazing? So much of the rhetoric that comes uh, from MAGA uh, when they're being defiant is, I believe in the Second Amendment coded stuff, you know, uh, uh, and I'm armed. You know, I mean, I hear it all the time now. It's just so you come for me, you better be warned. You better beware that I believe in the second amendment, that kind of rhetoric, you know, it's they put it out there so much. Uh, and, uh, 
kind of trash talking, MAGA trash talking that I've heard so much over the last eight years. It's just it's ceaseless. Uh, they're defiant about it. Uh, and uh, so then I contrasted the fact that there weren't guns blazing on January 6th. So you probably thought this through. Why weren't there guns at January 6th? Well, there's a there's a the short answer, which is DC gun laws, right? You know, so like that's you know you gotta gotta you know counts count some luck there, right? Because you know um, had they been carrying outside of the the you know the laws of DC, that would have immediately shut everything down. Um, but I also think what's really important. Now, this is one of those things that is both a an attempt to um, highlight the danger of the day and also to talk about the sort of subtleties of the day, the, and this has been proven by the January 6th convictions, the group of people who orchestrated and planned and were there to take the Capitol was a smaller group of people, much smaller group of people within that crowd. But what was fascinating was that the crowd gave them the critical mass to function. So by the time I'm getting to the West Gate, the number of Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, um, uh, uh, you know, right-wing extremists, you know, in militia garb, et cetera, had dwindled. It had lowered. There were still people there, but they had been replaced. And who had they been replaced with? Rank-and-file Trump supporters who did not come that day planning to invade the Capitol, but deciding to in the moment. And that's what made January 6th so much more dangerous. So when you ask, like, why are there guns a-blazing? Like, the people who would have come in guns a-blazing, A, knew that it would have been immediately found out. And obviously, we too, we found out that people did have weapons, right? Some people did have weapons. But it was sort of decided, hey, listen, this is all going to fizzle if we just come in with guns. So we need to be, you know, smarter about it. But what gave it its force and its power was the critical mass of, of people who decided to join that day. And that was that was how I got to the front, was that they were trying to funnel as many people. They were like, any able-bodied person who can get up there, they were like, get up here, get up here, get up here, streaming them to the front so that they could keep attempting their siege. Um, so I think that that's why, you know, you, you don't see it guns a-blazing because this, the people would have come in guns a-blazing. It's a tiny number, but they reached critical mass in terms of support. And how close in your mind, when you think about it, do you think they came to achieving their goals, which would have been uh, to intimidate Mike Pence and to declare Trump the winner? Well, if you listen to Mike Pence now, you know, there was no chance he was going to do it. Of course, we now we know that there were calls and pleads and he was convinced of that. Now he's chosen to defend it more full throatedly. But. Um, I think the question is if they killed Mike Pence, if they'd gotten to Mike Pence. I think if they'd gotten to Mike Pence, they would have killed him. I think if they'd gotten to anyone, they would have killed them. Um, I, or at least severely injured them. That was a group ready to fight. I mean, they're ready to fight me, and I'm not a politician that's deciding this at all. Um, you know, I think the frustration, the anger, the vitriol, the the rhetoric, all of that mixed together, they you know, they, it, they, they, they were ready to fight. And I think they would have, I think they would have, they would have at least harmed him greatly, if not killed him, if they'd gotten to him. Um, now obviously the secret service and Ashley Babbitt is an example of when someone got close, they got shot. And that's where, you know, the firepower of the, you know, the Capitol police, the secret service, et cetera, who was there, 
you think might have mitigated something. But yeah, I I think we were we were you know we were there we were there and I think we were there that surprise element actually kind of played into it. I think once again too, if they'd come in with guns, I think it might have been net with just equal force from the military from the national guard and then it's over but because it was sort of came in surreptitiously you know it was a group of people who lo- who were in street clothes who were wearing maga garb etc you know and in the aftermath as we sit here in september about a year out from the election uh, the forces of pro donald trump supporters continue to control the Republican Party, and they continue to cheer him on when he says that uh, the election in 2020 was stolen from him, even though we all know it wasn't stolen from him. And they continue to cheer him on when he says the people who stormed the Capitol were heroes uh, and uh, that he will you know, pardon them, et cetera, and so forth. This is before the American people. This is the decision they have to make. Uh, does What's your takeaway from all that, uh, Michael, having been at January 6th? So there is no doubt in my mind that there is a group of people who are ride or die for Trump uh, and that their their resolve will not be broken by anything. Um, They are convinced that Trump is the solution to what they see as the fundamental problems of the country. And, um, you know, I, I think what was almost as disturbing as the people in uh, tactical gear, uh, as the people who were just so clearly right wing were the people who felt exceedingly normal, quote unquote, you know, I, I talked to a guy who, I, I just think like looks like a dad from an eighties comedy, right? Just looks like, you know, he's got four kids in a kind of line. Like he's just like going to go to, you know, the movies on the weekend with his kids. And yet when he looked up at January 6th, he's like eyes glazed over. He like, it's almost like a new personality took over him and he looked up and he said, isn't this the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? And I'm just like, Whoa. So when you talk about that, you know, who's supporting him, it's like that. It's like when I looked at it, it was amazing. We we're looking at the same thing. And I, I look at it, it's like, I don't even know what to say to that. It's the most horrific <laughs> thing I've ever seen. I'm watching my country die in front of me. I'm seeing the Capitol desecrated and you look at it as a beautiful thing. So I think when you're going into an election like that, I think that group of voters, when you compare it to the enthusiasm on the left, which is, is obviously like Joe Biden is not that for the for any part of the left right so i'm not saying that there's some voter who voted for trump and then voted for biden perhaps begrudgingly in 2020 who's then going to suddenly in 2024 decide to vote for trump again like i don't think that person exists i just think that person might stay home and i'll tell you what the folks at january 6th or the people who wished they were january i talked to a lot of people who wished they were at january 6th people later in the Trump universe who said, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I wasn't there. I missed it. You know, so those, those people are going to go vote. They're going to vote no matter what. And so I think that, that I think it's going to be a question of turnout. And I think that the Trump folks will show up no matter what ride or die. And I think that that would be my warning for 2024 is to say, Sure, the polls indicate that both Biden and Trump are very unpopular and that you know Biden still wins in a head-to-head match. But I think 
what you have to be worried about is the voter who begrudgingly voted for Biden. There's no begrudging vote for Trump in a lot of ways. People who vote for Trump, they mean it. Yeah, uh, that is well put. The man is a uh, filmmaker. The man is a cameraman. Uh, but that is about as astute as analysis as I've heard on the upcoming election, Michael. And I got a lot of pundits come on this show, politicians come on this show, political geeks and junkies come on the show. But you're absolutely correct. That's, that's how I see it as well. Dems often go to sleep. Independent voters so removed from it, they may go to sleep. Uh, Mag is not sleeping. Anyway, I will close this interview by thank you for going on, but thank you for that footage, the guts you had. I urge everybody to check out the uh, documentary, Unprecedented. It is very powerful stuff. And then to get there, you go through the Trumps. You get to see the Trumps. So you it's it, you got to watch it all together. I keep saying, well, watch episode three, you know, like, because, you know, Michael, I'm like thinking people, uh, maybe they're not committed to watching the whole thing. All right, well, just watch episode. I had Steve James on. Uh, he comes on on the show all the time, another filmmaker. Uh, and uh, City So Real, his documentary about Chicago politics. And I always tell people, if you got to watch one, watch the final episode. So kind of saying the same thing uh, with you. But political junkies out there, you owe it to yourself to watch the whole thing. Mike, before I let you go, you're in town uh, filming right now. You want to say anything at all about your next uh, project that you're working on? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, yeah, I'm in Chicago. I'm filming at Whitney M. Young High School because I am doing a project about the American Rocketry Challenge, which is an annual model rocket competition open to middle and high school students. And I'm covering five teams from around the country, diverse in terms of geography, rural, urban, et cetera, and try and show how we can increase STEM education, access to STEM education uh, across the country and show what's working, what's not working. And 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 show just the power of this program and, and it's just fun to watch kids uh you know launch rockets so ladies and gentlemen just think about this january 6th uh, american rocketry project and hoop dreams too demand who dreams waterfront <laughs> let's not for wait hoop dreams 3d that's coming are you gonna work on that one too <laughs> i worked on it we shot it i shot it so oh, it's uh, it in the already. can yeah so uh we're <laughs> We're, they're in the edits, so just to, you know, hustle uh, Aton and Liam uh, to to hurry up, so Come on, uh, so, so Steve work. James can see the sequel to the sequel. <laughs> he saw the. I sent it to him. He saw it. He goes, "It was twisted." That was his analysis. <laughs> the great Steve James, a legend. Uh, in a the legend. Place. I'm a, I'm the biggest Steve James fan. I think I think his documentary is is better for him. Every movie he makes, and he's arguably the most ethical thoughtful filmmaker he's pushing the boundaries of what to do with your uh with your subjects how to treat people with compassion i think he's a just a, a real uh guiding light in that way I, i'm with you 100 uh, percent. i say that his head is going to get so big but he is he's the man have you ever seen his alan iverson documentary oh yeah i think he always gets mad at me that's the best uh, I think he wants me to say they're all the best. That's his thing. Uh, and one more shout out, Steve James, Compassionate Spy, his latest documentary, totally different Steve James flick. A lot of shout outs and plugs I'm doing, but these are people I really believe in, uh, that I support. I think they're doing outstanding work. Uh, Michael Cromit, Steve James, uh, Aton, and Leon, Liam. And so I try to help them any way I can. Michael, thank you very much for taking time to come talk to me. We're gonna, I'm going to work like hell to get Alex on the show, and I'll bring you back when your Rocket show is ready to, to be seen, all right? Thank you so much, Ben. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you for letting me share. All right, very good. also want to give a shout-out to Producer Chris. He does an outstanding job, as Michael has come to realize. So give yourself a raise, Producer Chris. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. 
And remember, if you want to get caught up on previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews or anything else, just head to chicagoreader.com. Follow Ben Jarofsky on Instagram at Benny J Show and like and subscribe to the Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.